I want to talk about what is called the God who sees me. To, about fully comprehending the fact, the reality that God sees us. And this is important in a society that feels blind. Because what I want to do is, through the word God, dispel Satan's lie. The lie that Satan says that you are unnoticed, that you are unimportant, that you are unvalued. And all of the full ramifications that come when we begin to believe that lie. Because if you know that God sees you, not only does it encourage you, but it causes you to act. And this is particularly important in a society which feels abandoned at epidemic proportions. I came across an article this week as I was studying and, and praying over the sermon. It was an article that happened in 1985. It happened in the community of New Orleans. And what had happened was that in September of 1985, as the, the year has kind of closed in terms of opening and closing pools, they realized that this was a year that there was nobody who had drowned. There was no fatalities due to drowning in the pools that would happen in, in New Orleans. So what they decided to do is they decided to throw an end-of-summer celebration. 200 people gathered, including 100 certified lifeguards. And they had this party. And so as they were ending the party, and the four on-guard lifeguards were asking everybody to get out of the pool, I can think you can maybe see where this is going. They found a fully dressed body in the deep end. Jerome Moody, 31, but it was too late. They tried to revive him. But he drowned, surrounded by lifeguards, celebrating their successful season. It's irony. Pretty ironic, isn't it? And I don't know what it was when I was reading that particular story that I began, my heart began to think about the church that gathers regularly to celebrate the fact that God has saved them and that we serve this wonderful God who is so great and mighty and we sing and we celebrate and, and it is such a wonderful thing and we are surrounded by people who love Jesus and people who have dedicated their lives to reach other people. And in this place of celebration, I can't help but think that there are a number of people that are drowning. That in the midst of all the things that are going on, the wonderful thing that happens at church, that there's this essence of the fact that I'm just kind of trying to keep my head above water. And maybe you have felt this way for some time. And maybe you had trouble singing the songs this morning and clapping your hands. And maybe you're weary of the church game and you're tired of the plastic smile. And you're coming up for one more gulp of air. And you may have attended a church, if not this church, for years. If that is you, I believe this message is for you this morning. And let me add this, that there have been prolonged seasons in my life where I have felt exactly like that. And you're the pastor. I just know I, for a number of years going to conferences, feeling I don't really belong here. I see all these people who seem to be doing great works, and that's what happens many times at the conferences. People talk about the wonderful things that God is doing, and, and you, you begin to feel God 
saying, well, well, what's, well, things aren't happening particularly that way in my church or whatever. And just felt always that I was out of place. What happens is many times we believe the lie that Satan peddles upon us. So Lord, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you will open our ears today for those people who think that they are unseen. That Lord, you will, you will reveal the lie that Satan has been whispering into many of our ears for so long. In Jesus' name, amen. If you ever want a deeper understanding of God. There are many ways that you can go about it. But one way, I find, is to do a study on what I call the names of God. Now, if you're here just visiting, or maybe you're online and you're kind of catching on, you're kind of new to the faith thing, you may say, I always thought there was only one name for God. Well, but there are many times that the Hebrew scriptures particularly name God. One of them is Elohim. It's the more personal name for God. There is Adonai. Adonai is kind of the pluralistic name. There is Yahweh. Yahweh is the covenant name that we use for God. And of course, perhaps maybe um, the most popular, I never checked it out, but one of the most popular names is Jehovah. In the Greek, it's Theos. But in the Hebrew, there's just something about the language, with the description of the language that kind of describes who God is. And the wonderful thing about the language in Hebrew is that many times in Scripture, and you can read it all the way through the Old Testament, that when a Hebrew word sometimes was spoken, it was compounded by another word to explain the character of who God was. So if you had the word Elohim, and you had the word Shaddai, which means mighty, and you combined it to say El Shaddai, you recognize that that means the Lord Almighty, the Lord who is all-sufficient. In Exodus chapter 6, it calls him El Shaddai. This is particularly with the word Jehovah, Jehovah Jireh, which is God our provider. Jehovah Shalom, God our peace. Jehovah Rapha, okay, now it's getting harder. The God who heals. Jehovah Nisi. The Lord is our banner. Okay, some smart people here. Jehovah Sidkenu. Ah, the Lord our righteousness. Okay, well, I'm not. It's not there's, there's no exam afterwards, folks. Chances are you probably would, I would probably fail. I'm not too sure. Anyways, there's one particular time in Scripture. Genesis chapter 16. Where a, I wonder if it was even a Christian individual or a, a believer in God at that time, refers to Jehovah, to God, as el ra We see it, it almost looks like El-Roy. It's pronounced el ra And this is what it says. The God who sees me. What a powerful statement. When Hagar says, the God who sees me. And if you can really fully comprehend El-Rahi, the God who sees me, I believe that it will change you. I believe that it will encourage you and it will refocus you on the plan that God has for your life. So let's read Genesis chapter 16. If you have your Bible apps, if you have your, your physical Bibles with you, um, it's six, uh, 13 verses. So I'm just going to kind of read it out. I don't have it on the PowerPoint. 
um, this morning. It's a familiar passage to Scripture uh, for many of us who have been Christians for a number of years. But it says this. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. And so she said to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed that Sarai agreed to what Sarai said. So Abram had been living in Canaan ten years. Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian slave Hagar and gave her to her husband to be his wife. This sounds just confusing, doesn't it? He slept with Hagar and she conceived. And when she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarai said to Abraham, You are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my slave in your arms, and now that she knows she's pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your slave is in your hands, Abraham said. Do whatever you think best. Then Sarai mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. Verse 7 says, the angel of the Lord found Hagar. Now, most commentators believe that it is not an angel of the Lord, but it is the angel of the Lord. That this is an, a pre-incarnate visitation of God. And this is the first time in Genesis, the first time in the Bible that we see this take place. That God actually comes down. Uh, where am I? Verse 7. If I can find verse 7 here in the midst of my notes. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from? Where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress Sarai, she answered. Then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. And the angel added, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. Verse 11 and 12 talks about how God was going to use um, Hagar and her son, who he, he named Ishmael. And that this child was going to be a wild donkey. Now, I don't know if I'm a parent. If there's a baby dedication and, and all of a sudden I have a word from the Lord and I say, Listen, you know, your, your child's going to be a wild donkey. I don't know if I might get a slap or something like that. But God begins to unlay everything that God is going to do, not only through Hagar, but through her son as well. And the last verse says this, and this is an important one because this is where the word El-Rohi is. She said this name to the Lord who spoke her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now come, I've now seen the one who sees me. Wow, this is a powerful story. It's almost a confusing story. And maybe if, if you're kind of new to faith and, and you don't really understand the Old Testament, there's a little bit of backup that perhaps we have to do. If you want to kind of know what the story of it is, it just kind of goes in, in a particular way. It starts with restlessness. You know, what happened was that God had made a promise, a covenant, a few chapters earlier to Abraham that said, I'm going to bless all of mankind. I'm going to bless all the nations of the earth through you. And it was a wonderful, wonderful promise. But in order to have a promise, you need an offspring. And for some reason, this wasn't taking place. And so instead of allowing God to continue to do what he said he would do, Sarai and Abram decide we are going to give God a hand. 
And it's Sarai that seems to have the idea. Now, if you read the wording, take a look at the wording in that particular passage of Scripture. Sarai says it this way, well, God has not allowed me to have a baby. You can tell that Sarai feels guilty over the fact that she is not being able to produce for her husband and for God. Somewhere along the way, maybe Satan has whispered into her heart. Well, God made this promise, and for some reason, I don't have the ability. That maybe God has rejected me. That maybe I'm not the person who, through whom this, this nation should be going through. And so you can see that the very first rejection that we see in this particular story is not Hagar. It is Sarai. And so what happens is in order to give God a hand, they sit there and, and resort to something which was common in that particular day. In those days when there were, when there were kingdoms and there were heirs that were necessary and, the, and the, the couple could not have a child, they bore children through um, the servants at that particular time. So that was something that was accepted at day, that day. But it wasn't what, something which was accepted by God. And just because the world says something is okay doesn't necessarily mean that God says it okay, that God calls us to something higher. So this is the scenario that they are working with, and everything seems to be fine until the pregnancy happens. And all of a sudden, there is despising which is taking place on both sides of the fence. And finally, Sarah says, this is your fault. Was your idea? No, this is your fault. And God's going to show me that you are the one that's wrong here, Abraham. And Abraham, instead of being able to stand up and resolve the issue, says this. She's your safe. You do with it whatever you think is best. Now, you will find, if you read on in the scriptures, that there were times when the man was supposed to stand up, and he didn't. It happens with Abraham. It happens uh, with Isaac. It happens with Jacob. And so what happens in this particular place is that Sarah, godly Sarah, the one through whom the promise of God is supposed to flow through, begins to bully, begins to resist, begins to speak against, begins to, to blame, and, 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 and basically reject this, this person, Hagar, until Hagar says this, I'm out of here. Can you imagine the situation? The fact that Abraham says, she's your slave, do whatever you want to her, causes us to realize that they had no value for Hagar whatsoever. That people can be cruel. Or maybe I should say, we can be cruel. I wish I could say it wasn't me, but I can think of times when I was not at my best and I was cruel. And there's something about when God's chosen people are cruel that is different than when God's non-chosen people are cruel. There's a certain expectation, and when all of a sudden that expectation is gone, I, I expect that from people who, who don't know or love God at all, but what happens when people who know and love God are cruel sometimes the world can be? That there's a different type of hurt. Not only is there just a breach of, of, of trust and, and, and closeness, but there's just a, a breach of, of the fact that there was something that was supposed to be there and it, it's not. And so that's what, what takes place. And she was something that cuts deeper about that. I don't know. She was abused. She was mistreated. She was unfairly treated. She was despised, it says. The other thing was is that 
if anybody was innocent, it's probably Hagar. This wasn't her idea. She was abandoned. She was alone. She was vulnerable. She felt out of place. She was confused. And I'll stop right here on the discovery that as I say these words, they seem awfully familiar, don't they? Because they're some of the words that we have heard in our own lives, that Satan has spoken to us. She's the victim of someone else's jealousy. She's the victim of someone else's envy. She's the victim of someone else's immaturity. She's the victim of someone else's insecurity. She's the victim of someone else's feeling of abandonment. Envy is a terrible thing. You know what someone said about envy? Envy is the most common problem that nobody has. None of us think we have a problem with envy, but every one of us have a problem with envy. It is distress over another person's success. And I am convinced that one of the biggest lies that Satan tells us is that we have no value that we are forgotten, that we don't belong, that there's a feeling of abandonment, rejection, neglect. It is that final kick that Satan whispers in our ears when we are at our lowest. And it comes from the least likely sources. It comes from a parent. It comes from a pastor. It comes from a family member. It comes from a friend. It comes from a church. It comes from a social media post. It comes from everyone and everywhere. That I'm insignificant, that I'm alone, that I'm unsignificant, that I'm invisible, that I do not fit in, that I, that I do not belong. And that this is drowning me with every single person around. And it is one of Satan's greatest lies. So Hagar takes the route into the desert near a spring, probably towards Egypt. And I'll tell you right now that that place in the desert near the spring is not an uncommon place. We read about this place maybe in different ways throughout Scripture. For Elijah, it was lying under a tree, praying, God, just let me die. For Jacob, it was in this community called Luz, in the middle of the night where it says he is sleeping and he has a rock for a pillow. Nothing's going right, God. I don't know what's going on here. I'm torn away from my family, and I don't know where I'm going. Or for maybe in, in 1 Samuel um, chapter 22, there's the cave of Adullam where David sits and says, God, I have done all the right things. I have not gone one way or the left. And for some reason, all hell is coming down on me. It is a familiar place to be where Hagar is. But there's some things I think that you need to know. There's some things I think that you need to take home with you. And the story unfolds really easy. It talks about this, first of all. We'll call it the intimacy, if, it's, if I have up. The intimacy says this. Hagar say, the slave of Sarai, where have you come and where are you going? The first thing is what we'll call the personal God. There's something about that particular passage of Scripture that speaks to us. You know why? Because he calls Hagar by her personal name. And and this is an interesting thing because at this particular time, we don't even know if Hagar even knows who God is. She's an Egyptian. She may not even know who this God is who's speaking to her, but this God certainly knows who she is because he speaks to her in her personal name. 
and he shows respect to her by using it. And this is an important factor to recognize, that she wasn't Jewish. But somehow God knows for her and sees her and cares for her. And if you're here this morning, or maybe you are watching online, and you don't know God at all, or at one time you did, and you find yourself far away and circumstances have happened and you're still not too sure where things are between you and God, this verse tells us anything. That no matter where you are, God loves you, he knows you, and he cares for you. It is a powerful thing. And for those of us who know him, the scriptures are abundant. John chapter 10, verse 3. He knows every sheep by name. Isaiah 49, verse 16, he says that, that we are engraved on the palm of his hand. You know, being engraved creates a deeper implication than is being written. He has cut, he has carved his name into your hand. He loves you and he cares for you that much. And Hagar becomes the only person in the Bible, male or female, Jew or Gentile, who named God personally when she calls him El Ra'i. Do you realize, folks, the intimacy of God, the love with which God sees you? He sees you and he cares. Well, he didn't see me during my divorce. He didn't see me during my bankruptcy. He didn't see me when I lost my business. He didn't see me when my child died. Didn't see me when I was in the accident. Didn't see me in that point in my life where everything fell apart. Didn't see me when I walked through that time of depression. He didn't see me when the bad news from the doctor came. Didn't see me when the prodigal son walked away and still has walked away. Didn't see me when my spouse dis- misplaced me and mistreated me didn't, and walked out on me. Didn't, God didn't see me when I was abused for all those years. If that's you, what you're going through, and chances are there are a number of us in that position. Let me just say this, that Jesus, when he was on the cross, says seven things. One of the things he says is this, God, where are you? Why have you forsaken me? Basically the same thing. The God had his, 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 Jesus on the cross at his most desperate moment had this feeling that God was not there. But his word is true. God says, I'll never leave you or forsake you. He says, I am El Ra'i, the God who sees you, the God who created the universe, the God who knows the thoughts of six billion people all at the same time sees you because his word is true. And his word is true whether you feel that way or not. Amen? He is the personal God. The next thing is this, that he's talking about not just the personal God. He's talking about, if I could have the next slide there. Maybe we're stuck the approach, the pursuit of God. You know what the wonderful thing is? When you look at this passage of Scripture, it is not Hagar pursuing God. It is God pursuing Hagar. What are you doing? Where are you going? What's taking place? And I love the fact that El Ra'i, in verse 9, begins to say, this is what it is all about. That there that I have, that, that you need to be reassured that I have seen you, that my love has not been forgotten in your life. And not only is God going to move in your life, God is going to move in your unborn child's life. And there's a special blessing that God showed upon Hagar that showed that he cared for. And here's the thing, that God's goodness outweighs the brokenness 
that presently surrounds you or presently surrounded her. It's true. You're going through one of those times where you just can't quite see God. You need to realize that the goodness of God will outweigh the brokenness of the moment. His word says in Psalm 147, verse 3, he's the father of compassion, the God of all comfort. And I just challenge for those of us who have lived for Jesus for years, that if you take a look at your life in the lowest moments, in the deepest times, and now that you have gone through them, you have realized that God was there. He was either there through another person, he was either there through whatever circumstance, he was there through his word, but he was there because God is pursuing us. The last thing is this, the legacy, which talks about the plan of God, that there was something that God still wanted to do, that the future of Hagar surpassed even her life in the present challenge, that God didn't discriminate. This is the, the, most, the most powerful thing about this passage, or one of the most powerful things about this passage was that it wasn't one of the top dogs in Scripture. It wasn't Abraham, it wasn't Moses, it wasn't David, it wasn't Daniel. It was a slave of Abraham that Abraham basically disregarded. And it was a woman at that particular time seen in lower regards. It was the lowest of the lows that God all of a sudden begins to talk to. I don't know where you see yourself on the totem pole, but God still sees you no matter what. And God shows the entire plan because he knows the entire plan. And I think sometimes we actually forget that when we serve God, that there is a plan, that there is a legacy that is for you. And many times that legacy surpasses you. In this case, it was this. God's going to use you, but God is going to use you to bring about someone that is going to cause another nation to come forward. And God is going to work through that. And God begins to reveal this to you. That God extends past your own generation. That, that, and then God tells her to go back. Now, this could be a difficult thing. But she was going back to a situation which wasn't the best. And I'm not too sure exactly how to address all the situations. I, I don't think that God ever wants us to go back to a situation where you're in, a, in some form of abuse. But in this particular situation, he says, you need to go back because I'm going to be with you in this whole process. And here's the thing. Sometimes God doesn't take away the hard time. Sometimes he assures us Sometimes he navigates us, or he leads us, or sometimes he teaches us, sometimes he develops us, and sometimes we don't know what God is doing until we get to heaven. But God will allow things to go wrong around me so that he can reveal what is wrong in me. God is always working in our life, and sometimes we don't understand it. And if you come to me and sit in my office and you tell me the story, I don't know if I'll have an answer all of the time. What I think he sought to do was he sought to lift her eyes to his cosmic, heavenly, eternal perspective. And that sometimes is the issue. As we go through the trouble, do we have an eternal perspective? Do we have the heavenly perspective? God is up to something, and he can't tell us exactly what it is right now. But if you can trust in him, if you can see the fact that he sees you, that you are not alone, that he has a plan for you, he wants to restore you, if you just trust him, you'll see this happens throughout Scripture. 
Proverbs 15.3, the eyes of the Lord are everywhere, watching over good and evil. Psalm 121, 3 and 5, the Lord watches over you. He who watches over you will not slumber. It's the last verse, I think, that is important. Verse um, 13 of Genesis chapter 16, I think I have it. It says, she gave, me, gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. She said, you are the God who sees me. And she doesn't finish there. It says, for she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. This is really interesting if you take a look at it at a deeper level. The one is a statement of truth, that God sees me. The other one is a statement of responsibility and opportunity. If you study this passage of Scripture, she says that the second part there, that commentators say that the second part there, I have now seen the Lord who has seen me, figures that, you know, no person can see God and live. And this is kind of what it's about. But I think that there's another meaning there that is equally important for us to understand. That one talks about the truth that he, that he sees, but the other one says this. There's an opportunity that God has allowed me to be part of the plan that he has. You know, to understand that God sees you is a wonderful thing. To understand that God sees you and wants to work through you is another. Because it will extend past the emotion. It will extend past the wonderful feelings that we have when we realize that God loves us. What it does is it realizes that I can face anything because I know that God sees me. That it dispels the lies of the enemy. I can praise God because he sees me and, and I can understand that he sees me and that changes me and that makes me different. The realization that is that when you see God, it should actually change you. The idea went further than soothing Hagar. And that's a great thing. I think God did need to soothe Hagar. But it caused her to realize that God loved and cared for her and that she wasn't abandoned. But it was also that God had had a plan for her life. And this is an important thing for an Egyptian girl. You know what the biggest problems that the Egyptians had with the Hebrew God? We have this carved image. We can see our God. We can't see your God. And so when Hagar, the Egyptian girl, says, I have now seen the God who sees me, it means something particularly special. It's a good thing. Because God wants to say to you today, I see you. Don't drown. In the midst of all the pain that you're going through, you're not invisible. I know everything. I've got the number of the hairs of your head, which are numbered. And if you can trust in the fact that the word of God says that I see you, that will allow you to pick up the pieces and go and do what I've called you to do. Because every time God shows up in a person's life, it's not just to pat them on the back. It is to put them in a position to go and do great things for him. Do you believe that God wants to do great things through you? Just came back from holidays. And so we started in Hamilton, and we drove six hours to Ottawa, visited my, my children, and then I had a brother who I hadn't seen in four years, so we drove six hours to Sudbury, spent a few days visiting friends and my brother, and then I drove six hours from Sudbury back to Niagara because it was, uh, it was my father-in-law's 95th birthday and we got a chance to see things. It was, it was great, but I think I put about 3,000 kilometers on the car that we, we borrowed. 
and I got very much acquainted with Google Maps. You all know what Google Maps is, right? And if you're familiar with Google Maps, what happens is it tells you, turn right in 500 meters. And if you miss that right turn, there will be a little sound. You know what that means? Hey, stupid. You forgot to make the right turn. Or it means I'm recalibrating. I'm figuring out another route. And I believe that there's something that applies to our life spiritually. That not only does God see if you care for you and want to do great things for you, but he wants to recalibrate us. He wants to set us in a place where we can do great things for him. It's been a tough two or three years. And in the process of what has happened, I'm not too sure if some of us haven't kind of gotten that space where we're saying, I'm not too sure how to go on from here. And for those who might be in that seat, trying to figure things out, I'll just say this. In the midst of all the confusion, in the midst of all the junk that seems to have gone on over the last little while, the Word of God says clearly that God sees you. But not only that, that He wants to set you back on the path where you do great things for Him. Amen? God, I just pray over this congregation. I pray, Father, for the presence of the Holy Spirit to move in our lives. And the reality is this as well. For those people who don't know Jesus, that the whole reason he came to earth to die on a cross was because he saw us and he saw our condition. He saw that we were sinners. He saw that there was absolutely no hope for us to make it to heaven on our own. And so what he did is he came in human flesh and died on a cross for us so that we might know him. And if there's any people who don't know Jesus, the Bible says, but as many as received him, to them gave he power to become sons and daughters of God. So Lord, whether we are a saint that has kind of been in this process for years, or maybe we're just kind of new to this faith thing, we need to realize that God continues to see us and desires to move through us in a powerful way. Because his name is El Ra'i, the God who sees us. So I pray that you bless every single person here. And I pray, Father, for those one or two or three people who have just been drowning in the midst of confusion, in the midst of hurt, in the midst of abandonment. And Lord Jesus, they will go with the confidence, Lord, that you are there and you have a job for us to do, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.